Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our text today is Philippians 2, 19-30, which is in 11 whole verses. Going a little quicker today. We've been in a theologically dense part of Philippians of late. Paul started out his letter by updating the Philippians about his situation as a prisoner in Rome, how he had actually an optimistic kind of outlook on that. Things were going well, as far as he was concerned, in this time of imprisonment. And then he turned to a focus on the Philippians' affairs, and that's where he got more dense, and there was a lot more meat on the bone that we've been trying to pick off. Um, He was urging them of the necessity of living in a gospel-worthy way. What that means is everybody needs to have this same mindset, a mindset of humility, of willingness to sacrifice and serve the needs of others and put others' needs before your own. That's what Jesus did. That's uh, what, God exalted, or what God put his stamp of approval on by exalting Jesus to the highest place. This is why he's given us his spirit to work and will within us. And this is why we should not grumble because that's contrary to that attitude. That's what Paul's been talking about up to this point. So after dealing with his situation and then their situation, now he moves into a new section, which is more administrative in form or character, but he's really carrying this same theme on in an interesting way. He's going to talk about what's next with regard to their relationship between himself and the Philippians. And what's next is, even though he's stuck there in a a cell, chained up between guards in Rome, and he can't be with his people in person, the people he loves, he's going to send them a couple of good men, men that he commends to them, men that he respects, men that he trusts. These men are going to help them uh, carry forward the work of their relationship, the the back and forth, the give and take of their relationship as pastor and people. Men who, to a really extraordinary degree, embody the things that Paul has been urging upon the church. So he's been saying, here's what you should be like. Here's a couple of men that really exemplify this, and I'm sending them to you for your encouragement and help. Those men are Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul's going to introduce them in this letter in reverse order of their arrival. So they're not coming together coming separate. One's coming first. One's already there. In fact, that's Epaphroditus. One's coming later. That's Timothy. Timothy, who is introduced first, he's going to come and he's going to bring news regarding the outcome of Paul's trial as soon as ever there is some. Epaphroditus, who's introduced second in the section, he's already there. He's one of their own. He's the man that they sent to be an encouragement and a help to Paul in his imprisonment. And He's the one, we assume, because he's already arrived, who has hand-delivered this letter of the Philippians, to the Philippians, to them in person. And Paul is, in part, trying to, having to explain why Epaphroditus is back. Because he hasn't yet fulfilled the mission that they send him on. Paul's still in prison. He still has needs. And yet he's back. And so Paul, in, commend, in commending him, is also giving, uh, making it clear you have, I, I, had, I really respect and receive your gift. It was a real gift to me, and I have, yet I have reasons for sending him back to you. He'll get into that. We all have a lot to learn 
from this passage of Scripture, but I especially want to speak to young men today, young men and boys, okay? I want you to be thinking as we look at these men and the ways God or Paul commends them to the church, I want you to be thinking, who do I look up to? Who do I respect? What do I think is really manly as I try to aim myself in a manly direction as a man? What am I trying to grow up into? What's my aim? Who am I looking at? Those are questions that I think we need to be asking young men as we look at this passage. Let's look at it together. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because he had heard that you had, because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage is divided into two paragraphs, and each paragraph deals with one of these two men, Timothy first and then Epaphroditus. Do you remember Timothy? He's introduced to us in Acts chapter 16, a young man from the city of Lystra in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, a place where Paul, on his second missionary journey, made a stop and encountered this young man and noticed something special about him. Timothy was the son of a godly Jewish mother. His father was a pagan Greek, uh, probably an unbelieving man who doesn't seem to be very interested in his son because he lets him go off on this long, indefinite mission with the Apostle Paul. It's just interesting to think, where's dad in this picture? He's clearly not in in the picture spiritually. We learn from the pastoral letters that Timothy also had a godly grandmother named Lois, And together with Eunice, Timothy's mom, they shaped his early spiritual life and character. So a young man spiritually shaped by women. I mention that because homeschooling comes on, gets a lot of flack here. The difficulty of homeschooling teenage boys comes under a lot of scrutiny here. And rightly so, because it is really challenging for mom to succeed at that as men are growing up into manhood. It worked here. It's something that can be done. So just wanted to put that out there. And with good results. So when Paul met Timothy, 
he found a young man, it says in Acts, who was well spoken of by the brothers. A man well spoken of by the brothers. So he's probably a teenager, young man, but he has a good reputation in the whole church. Everybody speaks highly of him. Paul also says, there's another indication of, of, of Timothy and his character and his interests and his pursuits as a young man from Paul's second letter to him later in life when he acknowledges that from, a young, from childhood, Timothy was familiar with the, the sacred writings, with the scriptures. What do we learn from Timothy and his character? Well, he's a very sober-minded, earnest young man who is interested in pursuing knowledge of God through the scriptures, who everyone speaks highly of. Yep, men. Am I on? Okay, young men. You know we have our eyes on you. You know we formulate opinions about you and how you're doing and where you're at. You know that that goes all the way back to the Bible. They were doing that back then. When it says that everyone spoke highly of Timothy, that's not like everybody wins. Everyone speaks highly of everybody all the time. Some people stand out even from a young age for their godliness, for their pursuit of the Lord. Young men, I want you to be like that, to be setting the pace for your friends in pursuing the knowledge of the scriptures, pursuing godliness, sobriety, good things like that. Paul saw something promising in Timothy and conscripted him into missionary service. He had Timothy circumcised. Paul, that was so that Timothy wouldn't be objectionable to other Jews on their journey. So most of us think that the hardest part about going on the mission field is raising funds. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Paul was with, or Timothy was with Paul when he first preached the gospel. When the gospel was first preached in Philippi, Timothy was with him. Shortly after they met and left on their journey, they wound up in Philippi and... Timothy observed all of that. He got to see Paul lead uh, Lydia and her household to the Lord. He got to see Paul lead the jailer and his household to the Lord and form a church there out of those people. Timothy was there at the beginning, and so they knew him and he knew them. He was along for the ride with the Apostle Paul for many years and many, through many trials. He stuck with him through thin, thick and thin. He got to feel the man and get to know him and observe how he worked. He got to see him evangelize, pastor, rebuke, perform miracles. He got to see it side by side along with the Apostle Paul. And he grew to adopt the Apostle Paul's own heart for ministry, for people. This is a man who Paul would later devote two priceless parts of his word to uh, pastoral letters of encouragement to Timothy as he's laboring to, to figure out how to be a pastor at Ephesus. Paul writes him two really amazing letters of encouragement and advice and help to instruct him. That's Timothy. He's like the next best thing to the Apostle Paul. And so a real gift to them when he comes. Paul is sending him to them, he hopes, in the Lord Jesus. So not presumptuously. He's not, taking, he's not master of his, of his fate, the Apostle Paul. He doesn't take anything for granted. He's submitted to the will of the Lord Jesus, which he thinks he knows how it's going to play out, but he doesn't know for sure. 
And so he says, I hope in the Lord soon to send Timothy to you. And the purpose being so that he can bring you good news, good tidings, that I've been acquitted and this whole matter has been dropped and I'm out of prison. He wants, he, this, and, but there's more to it than that. It's not just Timothy bringing good news to them. He's expecting Timothy to bring back good news to him. So this is for mutual encouragement. He says in verse 19, um, so that I also may be encouraged. So he's assuming their encouragement, but he also says, I'm, I'm looking for something out of this too. I'm sending Timothy to check up on you. I want to hear back about how you're doing. And so as you imagine the Apostle Paul, he's just wrote, written this letter. It's full of the concerns for the people that we've just been covering over the last weeks. Those concerns involve how they're unified together, how they're loving and serving one another. And so he's also sending Timothy, expecting to hear that they've received this well and that things are going good. So there's a little bit of carrot or stick mixed up in these carrots here. This is the encouragement also of accountability. Timothy represents accountability between the Apostle Paul and these people. It's very gently put, but it's implied there. Timothy's coming to check up on you. I hope you receive this letter very well. And you know what? If he's coming, then I'm likely coming soon after myself. And I'm looking for encouragement. Between those bookends of encouragement, which are in those verses there, 19 and 23 and following, Paul goes on to explain why Timothy alone is qualified for this special mission of encouragement. Verses 20 to 22, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely care for your welfare. There's nobody I trust more than this man. And here's why I trust him. I know he will care for you genuinely. No one is going to get a better read on how you're doing. No one is going to be more helpful to you because of his genuine heartfelt concern for people, his love, and no one do I trust more to bring me back an accurate report about you. Again, because of his genuine concern for people. And that's because for years, Timothy's been working alongside the Apostle Paul, and he has taken on his own heart of concern, pastoral concern, genuine love, selfless, Christ-honoring love for people kind of love that Jesus exhibited towards us, Timothy and Paul have taken on for themselves as the aim of their life and model it for the church and are out in front of everybody with this kind of genuineness of love. And that turns out to be a rare quality, sadly, even in Paul's situation. He says, that these are qualities that are lacking around him at this time. Everybody else, he says in verse 21, everybody else seeks after their own interests, not those of Christ's. So Timothy, being genuinely concerned for them, is fulfilling the interests of Jesus Christ. And hardly anybody does that. Isn't that sad? And this is, he's talking about Christian people. Everybody around me here in Rome, except for this man, is really in it for themselves or in it for themselves too much. And I can't trust them with something as important as this. 
because of it. Whose interests do you seek? This is not a glowing report about the state of the Roman church. There are many men in Paul's experience in life that are good and that he is willing to trust and send on important missions and care for people. Titus is one. There's a number of them that, he, that come up for mention in his letters that he commends. But at this time in his life, in Rome, around him, there's only Timothy that he can trust available at that time, and nobody better. It makes us remember what he said about those who were emboldened by his imprisonment to preach and to evangelize as he's restrained. Do you remember what he said? Some of them are doing it because they want to help me in my imprisonment, and, but a number of them are doing it for what were the words that he used? Selfish ambition, is that what he said? And vainglory, terms at least similar to that. They're in it for themselves. They're seeking, even they're using the proclamation of the gospel, evangelizing as a way of getting something for themselves, respect for themselves, honor for themselves, glory for themselves. Not Timothy. Timothy alone is, do I trust to be in it for the Lord Jesus Christ and for you. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's a call to all of us. Timothy is held up as a model for all of us to aspire to. Every one of us should be, seek to be in our lives, in ministry, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, in it for Christ and for people. Those should be our pure motives. But most of us, by nature, are at best mixed. We're in it for ourselves. We're in it for our own glory. We're seeking something for ourselves. We do this work of righteousness so that people over here will say, well done you. You're the kind of person that, you know, I should look up to. That's what we want. But Timothy and Paul, they want to be helpful. They want to be servants. They want to serve the Lord, and that means really helping people and carrying their needs and prioritizing their needs. So Timothy is the embodiment of all the things that Paul has been stressing and urging over many verses now in the Philippian church. Now, who wouldn't want... Um, bear with me a second. I think I got lost. Oh, yes. Paul also appeals to the Philippians' own observations of him over the years. So they, Paul says, this, this is what I know about Timothy and here's what you know about Timothy. You've seen this man in action. He says in verse 22, you know of Timothy's proven worth, how he served alongside me in the furtherance of the gospel, how affectionately, devotedly, like a son serving his father. You know Timothy's earnestness, his devotedness, his sincerity. You know this man to be a man of quality. You've seen him in action. So Timothy's like the next best thing to me. <coughs> Paul is saying, and he's coming and Lord willing, <clears throat> I'll visit soon after myself. Who wouldn't want such a commendation from the Apostle Paul? 
I mean, really. Imagine you, you uh, imagine, uh, it's hard to imagine, I'm the Apostle Paul, imagine. <laughs> imagine, use your creativity. And then imagine yourself right here with my arm around your shoulder. See this guy, see this lady? I have no one like them. There's no one that is going to treat you better, serve you better, is going to genuinely care for your needs, put your interests first, serve the Lord Jesus better than this person right here, you. Who wouldn't want the Apostle Paul to, have that, to receive that commendation from the Apostle Paul in front of everybody in a letter or in church service? Who wouldn't want that? Everyone would. Now, what is he commending Timothy for? What is it about Timothy? Is it Timothy's height? Is it Timothy's hair? Is it Timothy's truck? <laughs> Timothy's buff bod? What is it about Timothy? Is it his piercing intellect? His beard grooming techniques? This is the stuff of worldly aspiration. In a world where men are clawing hard and fast to try to recover some sense of dignity for men in a, in a feminized age, men are looking to things. The world is selling them solutions. Here's how you be a man. You grow out a beautiful beard. You take up bow hunting. You start you listen to Joe Rogan, Andrew Tate. You learn how to assert your primal dominance. It's so antichrist. Now, muscles, beards, you know, some of those things are indifferent things. Some of those things, like taking care of your body and gaining strength. Some jobs require it. And health is good for what it's worth. So some of those things are indifferent. But those voices out there that are selling, thank you, brother, very much. Voices that are out there selling to you men, um, these kinds of, you know, like accoutrement. Now, you're not going to find it in me. <laughs> I don't know why I'm looking at myself. <laughs> but these, you know, like tattoos and edginess and beautiful beard grooming techniques and uh, how to get, have success with babes and all that stuff is counterfeit manliness. Counterfeit manliness. It's such it's so empty. It's actually the opposite for most people. The opposite of manliness. Don't buy into it. Turn the voices off. Look to God's word and see what Paul is commending Timothy for and then later Epaphroditus for. And that is love. Willingness to sacrifice for people. Putting other people first in your life. 
The reason I say I call and I pronounce anathemas and say that all of those voices or many of those voices out there that are selling a counterfeit masculinity you should turn off is because they're selling the opposite. Put yourself first. This is how to get an advantage for yourself. This is how you can feel better as a man. Timothy has, doesn't have time to try to figure out how to feel better as a man because he's thinking about you. He's thinking about others. His life is about Jesus Christ, and Jesus served others. And so he's about others. He's about trying to help and serve and build up and encourage and strengthen the church, the people he loves, the people of God. That's his motivation. And he's extraordinarily good at it. (laughs) Isn't it weird? Kind of feel a little uncomfortable that Paul's putting up the humble servants <laughs> and saying, yeah, Timothy's not going to put himself up like that. But Paul trusts him. These are the kind of men that the church needs at the top. These are the kind of men that in good churches find themselves at the top. Because they genuinely want to serve and help other people. And that's what the church is about. It's about being built up in love. And so Paul is pointing to Timothy and Epaphroditus and pointing them out and saying, look to these guys, respect them, trust them, aspire to be like them, honor them. Timothy, how do we know that Timothy is not like, you know, on the side trying to get buff and, you know, that he's, he's not all these things because he's, got, he's six foot five and has a deep million dollar voice and perfect hair. Well, when you, we don't know a lot about Timothy, but if you try to put together a portrait of Timothy from Paul's letters to him, what emerges is, is a kind of timid, shy man with tummy trouble. <laughs> kind of anxious kind of guy. The kind of guy that needs a lot of bolstering from the Apostle Paul so that he has to get up the nerve to do the hard work that he needs to do to actually lead the church. He's not like the kind of guy that you look at and say, he was made to lead, look at him. No, the reason that that Paul and others come to trust Timothy is because they've received of his love. His love. Do you hear that, young men? The church needs your love. Your family needs your love. The world needs your love. I really was touched by what Pastor Vander Galleon admitted to in his sermon last week. Remember how he was describing himself as a young preacher and how um, someone, an older godly gentleman, told him, lovingly at some point, you know your problem is you don't love the people when you teach them. Remember him saying that and how instructive that was and eye-opening for him and he realized that's true. How many of us are like that and need the Apostle Paul in Scripture to say, uh, you don't actually love all of your righteousness, all of your leadership, all of your, you know, your acts, supposed acts of sacrifice. You're doing them and you're not loving the people as you do. Real manliness, 
godly manliness, Christ-like manliness consists in being willing to shoulder responsibility for the needs of others and making sacrifices in order to meet those needs. And we are blessed to have a lot of such men. One of our older single ladies, as she was coming out of the first service, was telling me all of the people who had served her that week are young men, are their fathers, are deacons. She'd been served by a whole bunch of people this week. And it was just beautiful to her and beautiful to me. We are blessed with a lot of such men in this church. I'm talking to you young men. Do you see them? Do you see them? Do you respect them? Do you aim at trying to become like them? Paul is holding up Timothy as a servant, as a lover, and he's saying, this is the kind of man you want to be. Be like that. In the second paragraph, verses 25 to 30 are about um, Epaphroditus. We don't know a lot about Epaphroditus, except what's revealed to us in uh, this letter itself. We know that he's part of the Philippian church. That's what emerges from this letter. He's probably not a Jew, but of pagan origin, Gentile origin. His name, Epaphroditus, means charming, lovely, fascinating. And that's because it has its root in the word for Aphrodite, the Greek goddess Aphrodite. So he's named after her. So I'm not alone in having a girly name. Real dudes have girly names. We have it on scriptural authority. <laughs> this probably indicates that, I mean, we're speculating here, but maybe his name points to something about his origins, that he's probably not from Philippi, because this is the kind of name you give your, your son when you are in a town or near a shrine for a certain god. And there is no such shrine or temple associated with Aphrodite in Philippi. So he's probably somebody who has settled there later in life, Philippi was known, it was in the Roman colony, established for the purpose of creating a place for retired Roman military men and their families to retire so that Rome didn't get overcrowded. Philippi was one of those colonies. Paul calling this man my fellow soldier may, may be a kind of reference to his biography. It's possible that he's one of these retired military captains and, and that Paul... It's the kind of thing Paul would call a man who's a military man and indicating, you know, kind of, we're, we're now fellow soldiers showing our medal together for the Lord Jesus. We don't know for sure, though. Some have thought uh, that Epaphroditus was pastor of the Philippian church and that they had sent their very best man, in fact, their leader, to Paul in his time of need. I think that's got some merit because what it does is it shows that the apostle, it, it sort of highlights their, the greatness of their gift, if that's the case. That they would be willing to send to Paul, their beloved Paul, their, their own pastor. And it, it sort of seems to help us understand more fully Epaphroditus' own tug of heart that we see here in this passage for the people back home. And his concern for them. Because apparently 
they don't know that he's gotten better. They've heard that he's gotten sick, but they don't know if he got better, and that really distresses him. Sounds like a pastor's heart to me. But we don't know. What we do know is that this is a trusted man who's been entrusted with great things. He was sent by the Philippian church to Paul in Rome, both to bear gifts to help Paul financially while he's in prison, and to be a gift, to offer any assistance he could to the apostle. The, the Roman prison system is not like ours today. They didn't get HBO and three square meals. In fact, they got nothing. And so if you were going to eat and survive in prison, you had to rely on family and friends around you to bring you what you needed. And such is the love of the Philippians towards Paul, that when they hear that, this, that he's being transported to Rome as a prisoner to await trial, they dispatch a good man from their church 900 miles with a lot of money to give Paul whatever assistance that he can during this trial. But here's why Paul's writing, in part, is to explain why, why Epaphroditus is back early. Paul's still in prison while this letter is being read. And yet Epaphroditus, their good man, who was sent on a mission, is back ahead of schedule before Paul is done needing assistance. And so Paul is writing, he has his reasons, and he's going to give those reasons why, but he also is writing with commendations to assure them that, no, Epaphroditus has fulfilled his mission, he's been more than helpful, and I, have re I receive it with gratitude. He doesn't want anybody getting resentful towards him or bearing resentment or grudge towards Epaphroditus, feeling like he failed in some way. So Paul commends him. In verse 25, he calls him, my brother. That's a term of affection, of ownership together. One of, we're of one family together. It's a word of parody. It's a pretty extraordinary word for the Apostle Paul to use towards this man. My brother, Epaphroditus. My fellow worker. That's a term that Paul only uses for people who have traveled with him and worked hard in evangelization with him and borne a lot of burdens together with him. Uh, another word of like camaraderie and parity, equality, my, bro my fellow worker. So he's dignifying him and his service, the service he's rendered. My fellow soldier, he says, which could be an indication of, the, of, of, his, of a former military career, just sort of an allusion to that, but certainly it's an indication of Epaphroditus's courageous willingness to suffer hardship and endure suffering. That is the nature of a soldier. Paul connects that term soldiering or that concept of soldiering with suffering when he's writing to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, suffer hardship with me, Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So this is an indication of Epaphroditus suffering with Paul while he's there. And he also says, he's your messenger and minister to my need. Later in chapter 14 of the letter, the apostle is going to, I don't know what the deal is, but the apostle is going to um, finally get around to acknowledging their financial gift and give them and thank them for it. He saves the best for last. But here he's acknowledging Epaphroditus himself and the tremendous gift that he's been to him while he's been there. All these are ways of validating, of validating Epaphroditus and the Philippians' uh, gift in him. But why was Paul sending him back early? He explains why in verses 26 to 28. Epaphroditus had taken ill and had gotten very sick. 
And the folks back home had heard about it, but they didn't know what had become of their brother. Now, sickness in their day means different things than it means to us. And, the, you know, you just think about all the drugs available to you on the shelves at Walmart for not very many dollars versus what they had available to them in their day. Death rates, life expectancy, completely different <laughs> universes. The life expectancy estimated for the, around the time of Jesus was 35 years old. That's because so many children died in infancy. If you made it into adulthood, you, probably, you, could, you could reasonably expect, on average, to survive to 55 years old. That's if you were in the upper classes. These days, it's what, right now, I think it's pegged at around 79 on average. 79 years old is our average life expectancy. So we're, we're, sickness and, and health in those days, much less taken for granted than ours. If you hear somebody get sick in, under circumstances prior to antibiotics, you have a lot more concern. You don't have a lot of, you don't have the kind of confident hope that they're going to recover that we have today and take for granted today. Paul confirms that Epaphroditus did almost die from his sickness. He says, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. Listen, I want to riff or talk here for a minute about sickness and death in the, in the godly. Just bear with me. Godly people, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, get sick and die. Sometimes at a very young age. The history of the church is filled with them. Some, some truly great men and women have died at what we would call before their time. David Brainerd, heard that name? A missionary to the Native Americans in the 1700s, died of tuberculosis in Jonathan Edwards' home. William Borden died at age 29 from cerebral meningitis while he was training to be a missionary to unreached Muslims in China before he ever got on the mission field. Died. Robert Murray McShane, an influential Scottish preacher, well, many of us have used his Bible reading plan, really great man, died at 29 years old in the prime of life at the peak, peak effectiveness. The Lord took him. Jonathan Goforth, who was inspired by McShane's ministry, became a missionary in China, and he lost five of 11 children on the mission field to death. We've experienced God's heavy hand in this way as a church. Bloomington Bible Church is going through, in a way, a similar thing. Their pastor, Josh, has been sick, for well over a year, and sidelined. He's been able to preach one time because of his health. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? Take some of the best men out of the equation when they're most needed and when they're at their peak effectiveness. It seems like such a waste. It is not how we would write the story. 
right? And at that point, we have to say uh, several things to ourselves. For starters, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And what he does is good and wise. We have to consider that some of these men have become all the more an example to us of how to live and how to die. Because in, in the, how they have, their godliness and how they have, if they were alive and able to speak to us, they would be affirming godly things about God's will associated with their death. But when God takes somebody essential and useful out of the way, takes them away, takes them to heaven, he does that. Why? So that you and I can learn how to depend more on him. How we can learn to walk more by faith and put our hope more squarely on him as our father and as our leader. He does this to help us, as painful as it is, as difficult as it is. God is good. He doesn't take people out, essential people, leaders, loved ones, he doesn't take them away to punish us and to exercise his wrath and displeasure. That's not what he does with his people, with his children, with the godly. What the Lord does, he does for our good. And so as painful and hard as it is, we can trust him. We must trust him and look to him for the help we need. Well, Paul is able and happy to report this time that Epaphroditus didn't die. He was sick unto death, but God intended for him to live on. And he acknowledges this as God's mercy. God had mercy on him, he says in verse 27. He healed him and allowed to live allowed him to live. And Paul says that that was as much for his own sake as for anybody else's, that he would not have sorrow upon sorrow. The apostle had a lot that in his life that he was dealing with that could be sorrowful. His imprisonment, the uncertainty of his future, people preaching for bad motives, trying to cause him trouble in prison, the daily care and concern of all the churches that he can't personally be out there helping, work that needs to be done, and Epaphroditus would have been more than I could bear. And so God was mercy to him, had mercy upon him and upon me. Upon me. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember that? Paul's not afraid to die. Epaphroditus, the godly man, is not a man afraid to die. But remember what he says? To be with Christ is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. It is a mercy to be spared the loss of a dear brother or leader or pastor. It is a mercy. When God decides not to spare them, but to take them from us, we must be prepared to see that as a mercy too. As hard as it is. Some have called that a severe mercy. But it's a mercy. God has good intentions. We need to look to him. But now that, uh, well, Paul had the benefit of knowing that Epaphroditus got better. And the Philippians didn't. 
And that's why Epaphroditus has come back. Not because he had, had exhausted his usefulness, but because Epaphroditus was distressed about the people back home, not knowing he had gotten better. And so Paul sends him back, first of all, to ease Epaphroditus' own concern for Epaphroditus' sake, so that he would have the relief of being able to have them know he's well and he's with them. Paul is sending them, him back, he says in verse 28, also for their sake, so, th- so that in seeing him alive, they would take joy, they'd be happy and relieved. And Paul says, also for my sake, so that I can be less concerned about you, so I can know that there's a good man back among you, stabilizing the flock, helping out, carrying the lambs. And also so that I can send this letter to you, so Epaphroditus, we assume, is the one who has borne this letter to the Philippians um, as he comes back. And how does Paul want this man to be received by them? Look at verse 29. He says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Why? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. That last bit sounds like a bit of a jab, doesn't it? That's just because in English it sounds that way. That word deficient just feels, you know, that we don't like deficiency. What Paul's really saying is, it's another affirmation that, that Epaphroditus has fulfilled his mission. Mission accomplished. Good work, all of you. He's really just saying, the, the care and concern that I know that you have for me, which you couldn't fulfill because of the distance, he has fulfilled. That's, when he, that's their deficiency, not themselves, but the distance. And Epaphroditus bridged the gap, and he really ministered to me here. I want to say a few things about this by way of application, and we'll be done. Here is yet another commendable man. An example of the kind of man we are to notice and esteem and whose character and pattern of life we're to emulate. What is worth noticing about Epaphroditus and imitating? It's that he possesses the same spirit of sacrifice of, that Timothy does, that Paul does, that the Lord Jesus Christ had before us all. The spirit which Jesus himself first possessed and demonstrated towards us. He exhibits this spirit of self-sacrifice, love towards others. Some men embody that spirit more than other people do. Some men have extraordinary love and concern for others. And that is an an expression of Christ-likeness, which exceeds other men. Young men... How do you think about such men as Timothy, Epaphroditus, good men around you here? How do you think about them? One temptation would be to dismiss them. They're not, they're not making much money. They're not climbing the ladder. They don't drive a big truck. There's all kinds of ways to dismiss godly men, strong men. Christ-like men. They don't look like much. You remember what Paul says in, the, in, in uh, 
Corinthians, speaking generally, the church doesn't have many noble, many mighty, many wise. But those that she has are great in the Lord's sight and great in the godly sight. And we don't dismiss them. Young men, look around you and realize there's a lot of men that are good, that sacrifice, that love, that are carrying us all. And I want you to honor them and look up to them and aspire to be like them and carry on their work after them and alongside them. Another temptation, and this is more common, is to be jealous of them. Because people stand taller in godliness around us is often a cause for us to be jealous of them and to envy the, the things and the responsibility and the authority and the leadership that naturally accrues to them and rightly accrues to them because of their love and their willingness to enter in and carry weight. And we can be jealous of them. We shouldn't do that either. What does the scripture say that we're to do? We are to highly esteem them. And Epaphroditus in particular, because he was willing to risk his very life to become sick even under the point of death in order to fulfill the mission that the church had given him in love for the Apostle Paul and to render any service he could to relieve him. Are there any young men here? I'm looking around, young men. Are there any young men here that are willing to risk their life for the Lord Jesus Christ? True manliness consists in making sacrifice. Men are made by God to lay down their lives for the sake of their families, their children, their country, but most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is honored and pleased, dads, when you go to work and, and give your, most of your day and your life to providing for your family financially. That's a sacrifice that you make. He's way more pleased when you come home and continue to bear the weight of relationship and spiritual needs in your home and carry the weight, and don't just leave that to mom or your wife. Men, do you hear me? And then there's some men who God calls and appoints in the church to after all of that work, to come into the church of God and to carry us, and to help us with our sin and our burdens and our needs. Such men were Timothy and Epaphroditus, men who would sacrifice their lives for others. Young boys, young men, God might be calling you to enter the ministry. He might be calling you to be an elder, an overseer in the house of God, or a deacon, to devote your lives even beyond just your family, beyond your small group, beyond just normal church membership, to, to officership in the church, 
carrying the church. The church needs that. That is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an honorable thing. What does the Apostle Paul says, say about this in 1 Timothy 3.1? He says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. This is a fine work, building the church of God, overseeing and helping, serving the needs of the people of God. It's a fine work, and it needs fine men. It needs fine men. If you want to be one of those fine men, what's it going to take? What's God going to use? Your brilliance? Your handsomeness? Your MDiv degree from an accredited institution? A doctorate? What, did it, what commended Timothy for, the, for such honor as being the next best thing to the Apostle Paul? His love. What, what, did, what was it about Epaphroditus that Paul says is to be held in high regard and to be esteemed? His willingness to sacrifice for the good of others. Young men... If you aspire to the ministry or to leadership, to honor and respect, in God's sight, the house of God, which is really just a way of saying, I would like to take on more responsibility. I'd like to be one of those who bears burdens. The way to do that is to grow in love. To grow in love. And so in order to grow in love, you need to look to the Lord Jesus, who sets the example of that. And then you need to look around you here in the church, for good examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you need to tie yourself to them, endear yourself to them, come along for the ride with them, and let them teach you what that looks like day to day, what it sounds like, where it takes you, who it helps and why. The church needs that. And young men, I hope you're listening and will consider aiming your life at that goal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word and we pray, Lord, that among us here you would continue to bless us with godly men who will lead us in sacrifice, who will lead us in love, who will really genuinely care for us in our need. We have so many needs, and we need help carrying them. Lord, would you send us men to bear our burdens? And would you raise up from among this congregation, the young men of this congregation, I pray, Lord, that you would raise them up to be um, like Jesus, like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, willing to risk it and to give their lives in service of others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.